Hey, if you have a Bible, open it up to 2 Chronicles chapter 6 this morning. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, we're going to look at those verses. We're in an extension of a series that was entitled Prayer, and I don't really know how long this series is going to go. We're following the extension, and we'll kind of see what happens. This is probably like the first time in my career that we're like starting something, but kind of ending something, and we'll see what happens. This morning, we're going to look at this prayer, which is the longest recorded prayer in the scriptures. And this comes at the heels of finishing our series on prayer. And the type of prayer that we were talking about that in, in that series is what we call transformative prayer. And it's the type of prayer that's more interested about what's happening in here than what's happening like out there. In other words, it's a prayer that is more Holy Spirit change me than it is God would you do this or that. And we walked through the process of that type of prayer. We gave an acronym to it just to help us remember that prayer rips. It's relational, it's internal, it's persistent, and it's spirit-filled. And that all scriptural prayer are, are those things. And so uh, what we were hoping to teach over those few weeks is for you and me to be able on our own to, to pray in such a way that we're different on the other side. And I hope that you'll continue to pray like that, like Jesus instructed us to, uh, and so that you might continue to be transformed into the image of his son. The extension of this series then is, is kind of asking the question, but what happens when a body, a family, a church all begin to pray like that? When, when each individual begins to pray like that, but then they collectively come together into the body that is the church, what happens then? And this series is really about answering that question. And so we're going to look through uh, this prayer in Solomon, and then we'll see where it takes us. Now, we're picking um, this uh, this this story up in chapter 6. And so to understand it fully, well, to understand it fully, we'd have to start in Genesis 1. But to understand it more fully less fully, but more fully than just this, we go back a little bit. And so we see that the, the line of Solomon goes back to David, of course, his father, uh, born in sin. And then, but further back than that, it really starts with a, a, a widowed woman named Ruth, who was just faithful and righteous in the midst of difficult circumstances. And God used this faithful and righteous Moabite woman to um, bring in his line. And so Ruth is really faithful, and she gets married, uh, remarried, and then has a son who has a son who has a son. And that son's name is David, who's just a forgotten shepherd boy out in the fields. But David is faithful, and he is righteous. And God rewards that and raises David up and makes him king over Israel, even through some really difficult circumstances. And as David becomes king, then he uh, is very successful, and, uh, and the kingdom grows, and David acquires wealth. But David David is a warrior, and even though he wants to build the temple, he, he sees the need for the temple. He's not called to actually build the temple, right? Sometimes we can see something, but we're not called to do that something. And so David sees it, but Solomon's called to build it. And so David sets it up, the table, perfectly for his son Solomon to now step in. And then the temple gets built, and it is beautiful, and, uh, and, uh, and really to this day, it's like unlike any other temple that's been built, right? I mean, it, even historically, we look at it. Now, we have to say that it wasn't the only temple, though, that was built during that time. Like to other gods, there were temples. 
And so you have all of these other buildings and beautiful historical ornate temples all across the world. But what made Solomon's temple different? What made Solomon's temple different? And this story that we're going to begin to look at today answers the question for us. But let me give you the answer. What made it different was the power of the presence of God. That's what was different. And what was different between uh, the temple of Solomon and every other temple built for, for every other God was the power of the presence of God. Now, throughout this series, what I want to do is, 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 is compare how what we're seeing here relates to the church, to the church. And, and we'll just talk about our church and how it relates. See, the thing that is supposed to be different between the believer and the unbeliever the living and the dead, whether that's a, uh, an individual or a church, the living church and the, the dead church, kind of like we talked about last week. What is supposed to be different is the power of the presence of God, that that is the distinguishing factor, the presence of God. Over the course of this year, if I could summarize, and I haven't used this language yet because it kind of just came to me this week, but, but as I look at the entire year so far, if I could sum it up in a line, I would say this, that, that we're just sensing the call to go deeper, not wider. That as a church, kind of the, the mantra of the year and the direction that we've been headed is how do we go deeper, not wider? See, it's easy to go wide. It's easy to go wide uh, because, I mean, even just think about the metaphor. It's really easy to dig the first one. It's a lot harder to go deeper and deeper and deeper into it. The other day, Reagan wanted to plant a garden. And so we had a little charcuterie board that we were doing with some friends. So Reagan planted a um, cheese garden. I'll give you updates on how it went. And um, she also planted a salami tree. So I'll let you know how that goes too. And, you know, she had her little spoon out there, and she was just kind of doing that and then throwing it on top. I was like, might need to go a little deeper if it's going to grow anything of substance. The church might need to go a little deeper if it's going to grow anything of substance. The, the church might need to go deeper instead of wider to be the church that Jesus came to plant. And so that's what we've been out about this year, going deeper, not wider. And I understand because it says in the scriptures all over the place that deeper, not wider, at first often meant less, not more. For Jesus looked at his disciples and they looked and they said, that teaching's too deep. And half of them left. Now, eventually, those who went deeper were used in such a way that it could go wider, but the deeper had to happen first. I think where we're headed in this series is to to look as a church and to go, how do we continue to press in into deeper, not wider? And, and, and hopefully then, as, as 1 Corinthians chapter 2 um, reminds us that uh, as, we, as we are in the Spirit of God, as we pray in the Spirit of God, uh, then it takes us into the depths of God. That's the language used, into the depths of God. And when we go down into the depths of God then, as I prayed earlier, what it does is it, as we go deeper into the depths and, and we see more and more the holiness of God, then, uh, then we also see more and more often the, the lack of holiness in us. 
See, deeper, not wider. Wider is easy because you just skim over things and you move along and and maybe for a second in wider, not deeper, you get a prick of the heart. But as long as you don't go back to it, it's okay. You can move on. But when you go deeper, not wider, you just keep going in and keep going in. And if you're really following into the depths of God, then whatever it is, it weighs more and more on you as you go deeper because you're getting closer to the presence of God and you go, I just can't carry this thing with me and keep going after his presence. And the more you get into his presence and the deeper you get, you just, like it says in Hebrews chapter 12, you just start throwing stuff off because you're like, well, I don't need this and I don't need that because the deeper I go, the lighter I want to travel. And so I'm going to leave all of the sin and I'm going to leave all of the other things that I love more and I'm just going to keep going deeper in. So deeper, not wider. And that's kind of where we've been, you know, as, as a church and, and where, where we're headed. So this morning, I want to just look through some of the parts of the, the prayer, and uh, we'll see how far we get, and, and then um, I guess then I'll be done. Did I forget anything in my intro? No, we're good. I was like, that's the longest intro ever. How long are we going to be here? I don't know. Last service, we broke a record for length, so good luck. All right, let's look at the prayer. Uh, oh, I did forget one little thing. There's this um, intersecting in this whole buildup up to this point that is the physical and the spiritual. And this is all of life. It's physical and it's spiritual. It's physical and it's spiritual. But what we see in this is how God took the, the physical through the, the line of, of Ruth and David and, and all of the things that they went through and then the actions and then the building of the temple and the money that was given and all this physical stuff, but that there was really something spiritual happening underneath. And, and what the story teaches us is that the, the shift between the physical and the spiritual really began to happen through the proper prayer of the assembly. Let me just say that a different way. That as a church, we can't just rely on the physical. That the church, the church that Christ came to plant, we say it around here, this is God's church, that, that, that his church has to be built upon and rooted in prayer. That that, 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 that that type of prayer, this type of prayer, is what then shifts from being just like everyone or everything else. Because when the power, the presence of God comes in, everything changes. Okay, now the story starts off like this. Then Solomon, then Solomon. Why? Because, um, because these moves of God, uh, particularly here in the Old Testament, as we see them, they, they happened through a particular leader. And so Solomon here is the king over all of Israel. Uh, as mentioned, he's wealthy, he's, he's wise, and Solomon has already done all of the internal work that he needed to do. And we see that in chapter one of the story when God says, hey, what do you want? Solomon's in prayer and God says, well, what, what's something I can give you? And Solomon asks for wisdom, which is kind of like the Old Testament equivalent of asking for the spirit of God. And so he asked for the Spirit of God to empower him, and, and, and then he's empowered, meaning he's done the hard work, um, and so now he's in this place uh, to lead over the nation. Now, let me just get this out there real quick. Um, don't in any way start making comparisons to, to like me or so and Solomon. That's not the point of the text, okay? Right? Like, I, 
I'm just the guy who gets to speak on Sunday. Jesus is the leader, okay? Jesus is the leader. And so Jesus already went first on this side of the cross. But on, on that side, Solomon was the leader. And Solomon in this story, he's just the picture of Jesus. He's just a picture of who Jesus is. And so Solomon does, uh, he, he steps up and, and Jesus is our Solomon. So then Solomon, it says, stood before the altar. And one of the, the keys is to know where um, we should stand to get everything beginning. To, like, where do you stand at the starting point? And for Solomon, he knew that he needed to stand before the altar. Now, what was the altar? The altar was the place of forgiveness. And uh, up until that time, before the temple had been built, the altar was the first thing that you did before you proceeded any deeper into experiencing the presence of God. And so for them, uh, Solomon, he's like, we're going we're gonna to start at the altar. We're going to start at the place of forgiveness. And where everything begins in the Christian life is we don't have an altar like that. We have something better. We have a cross. We have a cross. And so everything for the Christian starts at the cross. And everything for the church, like it starts at the cross and it starts at the place of forgiveness. It's why Lindsay's prayer was so timely in, in, in that song. Like everything I'm about to say or have said already, if you're not already in Christ, is going to e either appear foolish or cute. But after, after the cross and after the, 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 the moment of salvation or redemption occurs, then, then it looks and feels and you wear it differently. And so it all, but it all starts at the cross. And so on the altar, they, they laid out sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, but we have a better altar. We have the cross. There was just one sacrifice. His name was Jesus and he took care of it all for us. And now we get to step into that forgiveness and everything begins there which is why get your heart right and, and embrace that and, and receive that salvation. And now we all journey along. So Solomon stood before the altar. That's where he started this journey. And it was the altar of the Lord in the presence, in the presence. See, he was stepping out now in front of everybody. There is a time and a moment for private and reflective and quiet and personal prayer. And that's why our first four weeks of this series were about that relational, internal, persistent, spirit-filled prayer. There's some work that God probably needs to do in your heart. Holy Spirit, change me. That also, all that stuff that, that you need to do. But then there is a moment when the quiet, reflective, personal prayer or prayer has to step out of that into the public arena. And Solomon knew that it was now time uh, that he had done the work and he received what he had asked of the Lord to step out into public. Now let me draw a comparison here that, that there is an internal work that the church must do, that we as Christians must do. But now is not the time to remain quiet and reflective in who we have in Christ and what Christ can do. That, that we are, I think, entering a season where the church needs to no longer be quiet in the corner, reflective, but stepping out and declaring the truths that Solomon is going to declare in this prayer. That the, 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 the time for the church to step out is now. It's now. And so Solomon, he steps out in the presence of all the assembly of Israel. 
everybody's there, not just some of the tribes, not just some of the leaders, not some. See, there are certain, there are certain things that God wants to do that he does when, when like the mass gets involved. Like no holdouts, not part of the assembly. No, get the whole team there. Get everybody around. This is like the, the, the text message to every member of the family, right? Thought that was an Amen. This is when everyone, like like all of us got to get here and we all need to hear this. And so let me just be really clear. Redemption Church, like we all need to hear this, what we're talking about. We all need to step in to this. This is for the whole assembly. Like not just the leaders, not just the elders, not just the staff, everybody, everybody. And so Solomon's going to do this in front of everyone. So all the assembly of Israel, and what did he do? He spread out his hands, and and here's what we see next. Solomon had made, everyone's like, he was king. He definitely didn't make it, taking credit. But anyway, Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide. I know no one knows what a cubit is, but it doesn't matter. And three cubits high. And he had set it on the court, and he stood on it. And so imagine it's out there and, and now Solomon is standing up on the court and, 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 and man, we've seen the movies and, and we can imagine uh, like the era and the culture, right? That when, when Solomon came out and, uh, and the platform was placed out and he stepped on it, I, I mean, this is just my imagination, but, but I, I, I imagine that the nation went crazy. There's their king. He's out now all in front. There he is, Solomon. And, and look, there's the temple in the background. It's, it's beautiful and it's, a, it's amazing. And there's our King Solomon and he's on the platform, elevated above everybody else so that the whole nation can see and can hear what he has to say. And so there he is on the platform. But at this point in his life, um, uh, Solomon, he, he, he shows us something and he teaches us something that is absolutely critical. It is absolutely critical to understanding the nature of role in the church because what Solomon does when he's given the platform is he goes down to his knees. It says he lifts up his hands. I didn't say what he did with his eyes. I imagine they went up or they went down. Now in front of the entire nation, can you imagine a more humble position for a king to to get down on his knees in front of everyone? And I wonder if if the roar of the crowd went silent. And there on his knees in the place of humility with his hands lifted up to heaven as if to symbolize, stop cheering for me and cheer for him. And in this moment, what Solomon teaches us is that all spiritual platform, all platform in the body of Christ must always result in the elevation of Jesus and not a person. That it doesn't matter what platform it is. It doesn't matter if it's the preaching platform or the singing platform or the I give the goldfish to the kids platform. That every platform in the body of Christ is to be filled with the person who just says, I'm just the guy on his knees with hands up to heaven. 
And that a church that steals the glory of God by taking credit for what he has done and built, I don't think we'll ever experience the presence of God like these guys did. And so there Solomon gets on his knees. And then he begins to pray. Humility is most often in the scriptures the act that precipitates a movement of God. Humility is the act that often precipitates the move of God in the scriptures. And so here's Solomon humbling himself before his nation. And then he begins to pray. And here's what he prays. Oh, Lord, God of Israel. I love it. He's in front of Israel. Oh, Lord, God of us. Oh, Lord, God of Israel. But I like that he starts off the prayer like that because what he is reminding us even today is who it is that he was praying to and who it is that we ought to pray to. He's talking about the Lord, the God of Israel, like the, the, the one of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God who spoke creation into existence, not some other God that we have created, not some God that we say, all right, I like this part of God, but I don't like that part of God. I like Old Testament God, but I don't like New Testament God. Not the God that creates a false religion that is like just enough of Christianity to still look like Christianity, but isn't Christianity because it's not actually worshiping the true God and calling out holy, holy and desiring holy, holy. No, the one God, the holy God. The God of the Ten Commandments who wrote them in, but then summed them all up and just love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That God. And that God, then Solomon is praying to. I got lost. That God. He says, Oh Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you. He's going to root everything that he's about to say and do in, uh, in two doctrinal truths. We'll get to the second one next week. But truth number one is this, that there is no God like our God. No one. There's no God like our God. And the, the, the truth that the, the church can build its entire like, like identity on is there's no one like him. There's no gospel like his. There's no truth like his. There's no power like his. Like there is no one like our God. And the story rings out through all of the scriptures. Like, like, like from beginning to end, it's just this, this, this consummate reminder that there's no one like him. Like Pharaoh, when he was asked, you're going to let the people go, he said, nope, why? Because he thought he was just like that God. And so what did God do? He said, I will force you to do it, and those people will walk out on dry land because there's no one like our God. And then those people are supposed to take over a promised land. And, and they get 12, which is supposed to represent the entire assembly, right? The 12 spies that were supposed to go in. But guess what? 10 of them came in and they looked around. And let's just call those 10 the modern church. 
And they looked in and they said, yeah, I don't think the circumstances are right right now for us to do this. I think what is time for us to do is to just cower back and let the culture and the world take over. It is not that time. It is time for the church to step in and say, there is no one like our God. No one. There's no one like our God. You're scared of that? And, and, and all you have to do right now is open up your eyes and hear a little bit. And you're going to hear phrases like this dripped in. That we live in a post-Christian America. That the church is on the decline. That it will never experience what it experienced before. There have been far worse circumstances. There have been far darker days. And it is time for the church to say, this is not the time to sit back, to go wide, not deep. It is time to dive full into the presence of God and say, do something. And so, he roots it. There's no one like our God. And then, let me tell you a little bit about him, this God. He says, I lost my place. Where am I at? There's no God like you in heaven or on earth. And let me tell you about him. He keeps covenant and he shows steadfast love. He keeps his promises and nothing can separate you from his love. He keeps his promises, every single one of them. And here Solomon stand and he only got to see half of the promises that have been kept. We get to see much more than that. He made a promise to Adam that one day he and Eve's descendants would crush the serpent's head and he fulfilled it on the cross. He made a promise to Noah that there would be a grace that would spread over the whole earth and he accomplished it on the cross. He made a promise to Abraham that through his seed he would bless the whole world and he completed it on the cross. He made a promise to David that somebody from his family line would reign forever in an eternal kingdom and he accomplished it on the cross. Every promise that God has made has been accomplished. It all goes back to the cross and then comes out of the cross. He's kept every promise. And he shows steadfast love. And we see the story of the Israelites and it often mirrors our own story that they run away, but he keeps loving them. That we fall, we enter in to sin, we, we, we run after other things, but God keeps showering us with his steadfast love because there's no one that keeps promises like him and there's no one that loves like him. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, we're actually given a little bit of a picture just to help us understand how um, steadfast this love is. He says, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you. Right there. From the love of God. So Solomon is, he's rooting off or he's starting his prayer, rooting it in the truth that there is no one like our God and that he is the promise keeper and he is the love giver. And so Solomon, he sets up his prayer just like that. Oh, and as beautiful as the story of Solomon is and, and all of that, like I told you, Solomon is just a picture of Jesus that we have even a more beautiful picture of an even better king 
So Jesus, who was even the greater king, the better king, the more wealthy king, the more powerful king, would get in a place that was even more humble than on his knees in front of an entire nation. He would go to the cross with his arms spread out in front of the entire world and all of history. And when Solomon got done praying, I know I'm skipping a lot now, but when Solomon got done praying, look what happened. It says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, because the humble prayers of the collected body is what moves the heart of God. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That is a good day at church. That's the best day. Speaking of good days at church, where's Izzy? I know I didn't give her my cue, but why don't you just come on up? Sermon just feels different than the last time. She's probably hiding back there. Just, just contrast for a second the difference between experiencing the power of the presence of God in that way versus I felt good when I walked out of church today because I feel just a little bit better. I mean, the, the, the difference between the living and the dead is supposed to be the power of the presence of God. And as beautiful as this was, let me keep reading. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord. This is like, I don't even know what that means. It's like a glitch in an old video game. When, when you like try to see someone moving, you're like, I don't understand why they're moving. Like the priest couldn't enter it in. There wasn't anything that was in there. It's not like there was something physical that like, like took over the entirety of the temple, but the priests were just standing out there. And it's like the first guy was like, I don't know. I can't get in. Why? Because the presence of God was so thick and was so tangible and so real that they couldn't even step in. Yet that's what they experienced. And we would dare to think that we can manufacture the presence of God somehow. The, and then what happened? After this is when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground. Like, like this wasn't even enough. They had to go all the way down here. We don't even know how long they laid here. They just, they just laid on the ground. As if to, to, to say your holy holiness has driven me here. I can't even look. And yet, and yet we, we would dare to think that the sin is not that big of a deal. That, that we can speak about him like his power is gone and his church is dead. No, he is the God of the universe and there is no one like our God. 
And this story just points us to another story where Jesus laid like that on the cross. And then 40 days later, another fire fell. But it wasn't the fire consuming the sacrifice. It was the fire emboldening the church. And it was the fire that then consumed the early church that when they laid themselves down and they gathered in prayer to stand on the truth that there is no one like our God, their humility precipitated a move of God. And all throughout the story in the New Testament, there are these moments when, when, when the religious leaders and Rome itself looked and said, stop. Stop, stop. And they said, you can kill us. You can tell us to stop. You can put us in prison. But we have one job to stand up and declare the gospel that there is no one like our God. And then John, John, in his letter, in his letter, he writes to remind them of a truth that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There's no one like our God. And back in 2 Chronicles, he says, you shower steadfast love and, and, you, and you keep all of your promises. And then he adds this little trigger at the end, which is, which is basically to those who love you with all their heart. Now, here's what it's not saying. It's not saying that we have to earn God's promises. It's not saying that we have to earn God's love through our obedience. What it is saying is that once you've experienced this, that once you've actually understood the gospel, that then what ought to come out And, and, then, and then who God chooses to use are those who will say, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, which just like begs the question, what do you love more? <laughs> like, like, seriously, what is getting you more excited? What is driving you more? It'll be gone in a month, a year, a decade, or a hundred. And we don't do it physically, but we will do it. Like, like, like in a spiritual sense, we will lay down before whatever those things are and say, holy, holy are you. Really? <laughs> No, holy, holy is he, and there is none like him. When, when, we, when we took over possession of this church, um, it was July 31st, there were like eight of these laying on my desk when I walked in, and they were notes from the previous church that had owned this building. And I haven't read these in... Um, well, since July 31st. And uh, they were in like a weird spot in my office. And I was in my office and I was going over my sermon like I, like I do. And, um, and I saw one of them sticking out and, and, and it was just like one of those Holy Spirit moments. Like, go read that. So I went over and I grabbed it. Like, I, again, I have no idea what it written on these. And this one was written by the, the lead elder of that church um, and probably the guy that we'd had the most relationship with during the entire process. And I picked it up and it says this. It says in 1 Kings chapter 8, which is the parallel passage to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, the exact same passage, exact same passage. 
It says in 1 Kings chapter 8 and 2 Chronicles chapter 6, it says Solomon prays the longest recorded prayer in the entire Bible as part of the dedication of the newly built temple in Jerusalem. It says, may the following excerpts from that prayer apply equally, apply equally, apply equally. Like even the melting of that phrase like just began like as I read it this week. Like apply equally to, to, to that moment. Apply equally to what ended up being like one of those powerful things. Apply equally to redemption as you dedicate your new house of worship. And then he labels some excerpts. And here's the first one. Oh Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. We got the message, Chuck. There's no God like him. In other words, what, what that guy was saying is, as you enter into this place and may God do equally what he did there, may you be rooted firmly in the knowledge that there is no one like our God. And then he goes on to say this. As for the foreigner who has come from a distant land. And I stopped to think and I was like, I'll take like three miles outside of Monclova right now. And that'll be good enough for me. As for the foreigner who has come from a distant land, but here's the part I want you to know, because of your great name, that may that may we as a body remember always that whoever ascends to any platform at any level so that anyone who may enter in from however far it is, come and then come again and then be a part for one reason and one reason only. May one name be renowned out of this place and that be Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Only his name and may it be that which draws. That it would always be Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. As for the foreigner who has come from a distant land, because of your great name, all the peoples of the earth would know your name, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. May God richly bless you. He ends with that, and he has. And I'll be honest. As we sit here today, I don't know right now if the church that exists right now is, 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 is the seed, the bush, or the top of the tree. I don't know. I don't really care to know other than, God, you do what you want to do. But if we're going to do it, then may it all be empowered by the presence of God and bring glory and elevation to the name of Jesus only. Always, always, always. I think of that story. We're going to end with this. I think of that story. I think it's Kings or Second Kings or one of those. And Elisha, he's there with a, a protege. And he, the protege looks out 
And he goes, yeah, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. Situation doesn't look good. The, the, the culture isn't ripe. The, it's going to be hard. We're going to lose. And he's looking at it through his eyes and his perspective. And then Elisha, who's seen some move of God's in his life, steps up and goes, hold on. Hold on. Let me give you a different way to see it. And Elisha says a little prayer and almost like a snap of his fingers. And all of a sudden, the, the, the young protege looks out and he sees how even though the enemy is camped against them, thinking this is our time to strike and this is our time to win and this is our time to stamp out Israel or to destroy the church once and for all, to make it go into hiding. He says, no, look. Heaven is here. Angels are present. And the exact opposite is about to happen. The church could enter into its finest hour. And what, my friends, will precipitate that? The humility of standing before the cross, crying out, holy, holy, and in one accord, standing up together and praying and experiencing the power, would you stand with me, of the presence of God. So Father, as we sing this song on our way out today, may today just be a seed of whatever it is you want to birth in our church. And may each and every one of us look in, ask what our part is in both the spiritual and the physical. And Lord, may the church, the church, your church, may it be entering its finest hour. We pray this in the only name that matters, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.